It's always great to be with you guys. Love this age group. I love this ministry. It's just such a joy to see what God is doing in and through uh, young adults. As Sam mentioned, uh, Minor Prophets is kind of the theme throughout the rest of this year into the third week of May. We're continuing that with Malachi tonight, and uh, you can open your Bibles to that if you haven't already. But um, just a couple real quick notes on this whole idea of prophets and prophecy, because this can be a confusing concept sometimes. I just want to make sure to kind of tee things up in a way that helps us to make heads or tails of this. So when we think of prophecy, there's really two big categories that prophecy falls into. And the first is what we usually think of, and that's this foretelling of something. And foretelling is the revealing of God's will about something that is going to happen in the future or an outcome of something based on the actions or decisions of people today. So it's almost um, a, a, a looking forward where God knows and he uses the, the mouthpiece of a person to speak forth uh, ahead of time something that's going to happen. Uh, an example of that might be all the predictions about Jesus in the Old Testament and the things that were fulfilled in the person of Christ. But the second category is actually more prevalent in the Old Testament, and that second category of prophecy is a forthtelling. And this is a speaking forth or a speaking out of God's truth through the prophet to the people that God wants to be hearers of that truth. And so, it's not even necessarily a, um, a forward-looking, but it's a truth-revealing in, uh, in its construct. So in the book of Malachi, we really see both of these in conjunction with each other. In the second half of Malachi, which uh, it will be, I think, actually the last night of the young adult schedule this year is the, the second half of Malachi, we're going to see more of the forth-telling aspect of uh, or the, the foretelling, rather, um, of Malachi. But the foretelling is what we're going to be looking at this evening from the first chapter of Malachi. Uh, the second part you're, we're going to uh, look at later on. I'm not actually teaching that part of it, but it talks about John the Baptist and, and the one that is preparing the way for the Messiah, and it's a looking forward to what is to come. But bringing us all the way back to chapter 1, what we're looking at tonight this foretelling is God's uh, depiction of his um, observations of how worship is going in the temple in this time. We also use the term minor prophet, and just to help us understand minor prophet, minor in no way means less important. Minor is only a usage of a term in its quantity or volume of material. So minor prophet just has less material. Major prophet tends to have more material, but they're equal in their importance, hence the term minor prophet. So let's uh, open um, our time with a, a quick story. Uh, I'm reminded of a preacher from years and years ago. His name was Henry um, Beecher, Henry Ward Beecher. And he was such a beloved pastor and preacher that people came from all over the country to come and worship at his church because they wanted to hear him. And there was this one Sunday where he was going to be gone, and so a visiting preacher was there. And as that visiting preacher came up onto the stage and took the position in the stage, he looked out and he noticed several people start standing up and heading for the doors because they realized that their beloved preacher was not going to be speaking that week. 
And it was at that time that this visiting preacher said, may I have your attention, please? Whoever came here today to worship Henry Ward Beecher, you may now exit the church. Whoever came here to worship God, you may have a seat. And people come to church for all sorts of reasons, right? And it's not even necessarily bad. Sometimes people come to church because they want to be with friends, and that's great. Sometimes people come to church because they have children that are singing in the children's um, musical. Or maybe it's even a sense of duty, something that I've always gone to church, I just kind of feel like it's the right thing to do. I just go to church, it's, it's what I do. Or maybe it's to hear a particular speaker that, you know, I'm going to look ahead at the schedule and if so-and-so is speaking, then I'm going to show up. But if this other person is speaking, maybe I'll sleep in that week. There's lots of things that bring us to a point where we're getting involved in church or getting involved in ministry. But at some point in all of our lives and all of our relationship with Jesus, there has to be a, a, a transformation that starts to take effect. And that transformation changes from those motivations to more and more of a desire to grow in my relationship with Jesus, to spend time worshiping the Lord with authenticity, and to continue to hear and learn from his word. So as I mature in my faith, as you mature in your faith, it ought to to move more and more toward that goal of authentic worship personally between me and the Lord. In today's uh, text, Malachi is describing the worship of the Jews in Jerusalem during his time. And it wasn't really a pretty picture, to be honest with you. He's outlining three major problems in three major categories that was occurring during this worship that he's going to be describing. And the first depiction is that the people were very careless in their worship. They were somewhat ambivalent about the whole idea of worshiping the Lord. The second problem is the negative impact that this carelessness had in their relationship with God. And the third problem is the steep cost at which this indifference came. Now just as a little bit of background, the the Jews in Jerusalem had been wandering for 70 years in exile. And they finally were able to, to take residence in Jerusalem And they finally built the temple, the permanent temple. Remember the tabernacle is almost like a a traveling temple, if you will. And they have this permanent temple and they set up worship to the Lord. And on the outside, everything looked just wonderful. It was a fairy tale, happily ever after type of situation. But on the inside, their hearts were plagued by apathy and indifference. And even in some ways, a sense of entitlement in their worship to the Lord. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. The book of Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. So if you go about two-thirds of the way into your Bible, um, it's the very last book there. If you hit the Gospels, just go to your left a little bit until you see Malachi. It's only a couple pages long, so it's easy to miss. But what's interesting is chronologically, it's also the last book in chronology that is ultimately going to bridge the gap between the Old Testament and about a 400-year intertestamental period and then usher in the New Testament time of the coming Messiah. 
And the importance of that is that Malachi is looking at the worship of, the, of God's people, the Israelites, and he's saying, if we're not getting this right, right now, is our heart going to be in the spot it needs to be when the Messiah comes? And that's the whole second part of Malachi, is this ushering in of the introduction of that Messiah. So we're going to read uh, chapter 1, verses 6 to 14, and then we're going to come back and make some comments about a few of those verses. It says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I, the Lord says, am a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar? But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised? When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of the Lord that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For the, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock, not particularly a male, but an unblemished um, animal, and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And so this section starts with these rhetorical questions about um, where is my honor and where is my fear? The answer is already known. It can also be postulated as why am I not honored and why am I not feared? The priests really had two primary roles in this day. The first was to teach uh, the law, and even in that they failed. You see in Malachi 2.8, it says, but you have turned aside from the way, you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. So to teach the law was one of the primary responsibilities, and the second responsibility was to oversee the worship and the sacrifices. And in the section that we just read, it's that latter role that we're going to be talking about tonight. So the initial assertion that the Lord puts forth is that these people were despising God's name. In other words, they were dishonoring and disrespecting his character, his reputation, his attributes. They were dishonoring the name of the Lord. And you notice in, in verse 6 and 7 how they respond. They say, how, how have we despised your name? 
There's this defensiveness. There's this looking around and passing the buck. What do you mean, Lord? I, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then the Lord says, by offering polluted food upon my altar? And they keep on going. And they say, well, what do you mean? How, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table might be despised? And you see this defensiveness and this denial that's coming forth from the priests that are supposed to be representing the people and offering worship and sacrifice to the Lord on behalf of the people. In verse 7, it says that they were offering polluted food upon my altar, but you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. You see what's happening here? Is that these people were offering these cut-rate offerings and just sort of having this expectation that the Lord will bless those efforts. And then in verse 8, he uses human politics to drive this point home. He says, when you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. I mean, will he show you any favor? Will he accept you, says the Lord of hosts. In that day, it was considered a personal insult to offer second-rate gifts to someone as important as the governor. In fact, you're putting your life on the line if you do so. But what they offered to God, who was infinitely more powerful, infinitely more worthy, infinitely more due worship than any human ruler, were these sick, lame, crippled, and even sometimes stolen animals. And these offerings are ultimately a reflection of the giver's heart. And it's also a reflection of the value that the giver has on the recipient. My wife and I, in the middle of January, celebrated our 16th wedding anniversary. And um, imagine if I had come home from work and, um, you know, she was kind of giddy with excitement and this is, you know, 16 years, this is a great thing. And um, she's like, so, our anniversary today. I'm like, our anniversary today. Yeah, about that. And I go to the little box, you know, that's in our bedroom closet. And I open that up, and I'm like, oh, boy, i got to figure something out here. And I pull out the 15-year anniversary card. And I take a pen, and I just scribble out 15 years, and I write 16. And I close that up, and I stuff it back into the already opened envelope, and I kind of tape that together, and, you know, it's sealed again, so we're good. And I go into the freezer, and I pull out that frost-burnt, you know, hungry man TV dinner and I throw it in the microwave and I hit three minutes and 20 seconds or whatever it is. And then I run to the dollar store and I find the cheapest faded plastic flowers I can and I chuck them in a water glass and I put the whole spread in front of my wife and I'm like, happy 16-year anniversary, honey. We good now? You think she's going to be honored by that? Do you think she's going to feel valued by her husband? Do you think I'm going to survive the evening? <laughs> Probably none of the above, right? Why? Because I had no thought, I had no effort, and I was giving her kind of the leftovers of whatever was laying around. The value that we place on the recipient shows the importance that they have to us. And ultimately, for the 
Israelites who are worshiping in this time, the issue at hand was that God's greatness, it wasn't being recognized. And the people, they were just offering much less than their very best. The question then, of course, is, is God really going to be pleased? Is he really going to bless this half-hearted affair? Let's look to verse 10 for the answer. It says, oh, that there were even one of you who would shut the doors, that you, wouldn't, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. In response to this um, worship, if you can even call it that, that the Israelites offered, the Lord's response essentially was just stop. Just, just close the doors, shut it down, let the fires burn down for the, the, the sacrifices that you're going to, you're, you're actually doing more harm than good. And you just need to stop because it's really not about you and what you're doing. It's about this. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to accept your offerings if this is not in the right spot. You guys may have uh, heard of a song by Matthew West. It's called um, The Motions. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but some of the lyrics of that song says, I don't want to go through the motions. I don't want to go one more day without your all-consuming passion inside of me. I don't want to spend my whole life asking, what if I had given everything instead of going through the motions? What if? What might my life look like? What might my heart look like? What might the lives of people around me look like if I hadn't just spent my life going through the motions? And the Israelite people, they mistakenly thought that, you know, if we just go through these motions, if we just check all the right spiritual boxes, then, yep, God will be good. He'll bless that. And they were so wrong in their assumptions. You see, they didn't understand or they didn't remember that God accepts us on the basis of our faith, not checking a bunch of spiritual boxes. In the Old Testament, they looked forward in faith to a coming Messiah, the one that they can trust God, that he promised is coming to be the propitiation for their sins. And now, in our day and age, we look back to the finished work of Christ and all he's done on the cross to die for our sins, and it's through that faith in Christ that God gives us salvation. But instead, um, the tendency was to just kind of get stuck in this rut and just going through the motions. And God, understandably, didn't bless those efforts. It's equally dangerous when we um, manipulate God or try to manipulate God. Um, I don't really think that's possible, but I think in our, our minds we sometimes have this notion that if I just do X, Y, Z, God, then you owe me or I expect you to do something for me. Have you ever had something kind of difficult in your life happen and your prayer to the Lord is something like this? God, I've served you. I've been faithful. I've been reading my Bible. I've been trying to live a good, clean life. I've been trying to do what you asked me to and this is what I get for it. And what's behind that sentiment is that God, because I did this, and check these boxes, you owe me, God, and my life ought to be easy because I checked the right boxes. 
And it's a wrong-hearted worship because it's not engaging my heart. It's only engaging my actions. Expectation, ultimately, if I'm expecting things from God, expectation recalibrates the focus of my worship from God to myself because what I'm doing is I'm expecting God to do something for me. Anytime we expect something, we make ourselves the center of the issue. And when everything is all about me, it causes us, quite frankly, to become more and more disengaged and more and more bored with God and more and more intrigued and interested with the things of the world. One author uh, put it this way. He said, if you don't see the greatness of God, then all the things that money can buy become very exciting. If you can't see the sun, you'll be impressed with a streetlight. If you've never felt thunder or lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and the majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. And so they offered sheep with broken legs and sickness and blindness. Why? Verse 13 tells us that worship had become a weariness to them. They were bored with going through the motions. They snorted at it like, Psh. I do this. This is what, what is this? I'm, I'm kind of getting tired of this. That's the attitude that Malachi describes in verse 13. They're bored with God, and I think that's why this section closes in verse 14 with reminding uh, the reader. It says, "Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it." In other words, I have what it takes, God, and yep, it's all yours because I want to give you my best. And vows that, but then sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. He's trying to kind of pull one over on the Lord. It's like the old switcheroo behind the back. You know, you know, have this perfect blemished lamb that's supposed to temporarily appease the wrath of God for the sins of the people. And it's like, you know, I'm going to kind of put that aside and let's just pull the curtain around that one. And you know, I'm going to pull this other one behind the back with a broken leg dangling and patches of wool missing because it's so sick and it's blind. And that's what I'm going to give to the Lord. And maybe he won't know this. And he vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. That's about the third time that God says, my name will be feared among the nations. Do you know why? Because the glory of God does not depend on our worship. God's name is great. God's name will always be great. And it's not dependent on the quality of our worship. Our worship authentically is due him. And it benefits us tremendously. But what was happening in these verses is that God had to remind them that these worship leftovers that people were offering, they weren't really pleasing to the Lord. He wasn't going to bless those efforts. And he reminds them of who he is. And what kind of God they ought to keep in mind as they worship, hopefully with authenticity next time. So I'd like to leave us with three application points. Um, tonight you'll have some time in your small groups to go through some discussion and some other things. I want to go through three different points of application as we talk about that. And some of these will be questions as well. The people who are leading your small groups have some copies of these notes so they can um, pull up these questions. You don't have to write them down. 
But as we think about application from this text, maybe the first thing that comes to our mind is that, look, I'm not a priest. I'm not an Old Testament priest. I'm not a temple priest. So I'm good. I'm off the hook. I'm just a Christian. I'm just sitting in the, in the audience, and I can just kind of fly under the radar, and, and we're good to go. But keep in mind that in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that we, our bodies, are a temple for the Holy Spirit. When Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, we no longer have temples of buildings built by men, but we ourselves, believers in Christ, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's us. And furthermore, I love what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, but you, believer in Christ, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of he who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Me? Royal priesthood? You? Royal priesthood? New Testament? Dwelling place of the Holy Spirit? Temple? The instruction and the references to worship in Malachi's day have tremendous impact in our personal and in our corporate worship today. Don't miss the point that we If we know Christ as our Savior, we have been called his ambassadors, his representatives, the dwelling place for his spirit, and God has called us to be that in our lives today. So our first discussion point, I want you to think back to the first time that you came either to church or to this ministry or something else, and just have a a very open discussion about what was the thing that brought you here to begin with? And everybody's got a story, and those are great stories, and those are great things to celebrate. For me, it was friends that invited me, and I went to Living Waters Bible Camp for the first time, and I heard the gospel, and I, at 17 years old, accepted Jesus as my Savior, and that put me on a lifelong trajectory of knowing and growing in Him. But everybody's got a story, and those are great things to celebrate, but what is it for you? What is the thing that caused you to maybe come in the first place? But then piggybacking off of that, From our earlier discussion, if you're looking at your heart and evaluating that, how much has your focus and motivation moved more and more into the camp of, you know, the reason I keep coming or the reason I come back is because I just love Jesus. I want to learn more about him. I want to get in the word and drink deep about the things of the Lord. I want to truly just worship as we do music and other things. I just want that to be a core part of my life. How much has that moved? And again, that's not at all to say that we shouldn't enjoy the friends that we have or enjoy watching our kids sing. Not at all. But there ought to be a transformation in our heart where we move more and more toward authentic worship. I just want to put a little um, parenthetical few comments here. Um, Most of us have a figurehead in our life, a spiritual figurehead that um, we've really learned a lot from. Maybe a a gal or a guy that has been so influential in our life. Um, It could be one of the leaders in this ministry. It could be, um, 
you know, somebody that is a, a big name a preacher or it could be a, an author of a book that was really influential. influential. Maybe you're in the podcast and, or you're watching right now media. Whatever that is, there's a, there's a person that has really been influential in your life. And if you've paid attention to the news in the last few years, it's been a really, really stark reminder that no human being is beyond the capability of falling into sin and having a moral tumble in their life. There's been example after example after example of that. And so many times the ones we hear about are those higher profile individuals. And the litmus test for my life and for your life is when that happens, if my faith has been shaken in some way, the foundation of my faith has been shaken in some way because of the sinful actions of the person that has been a figurehead in my life, it ought to cause me to reevaluate whether I had too much emphasis of worship in that person and I need to recalibrate that to the Lord. Because I don't want to Velcro the well-being of my spiritual life to another person that has the same propensity to sin that I do. I want to permanently attach my spiritual well-being to the only unwavering foundation that is Christ. And that's what God has called, I think, all of us to do. So as we grow in our relationship with God, our passion and our excitement for the Lord naturally grows and the things of this world ought to grow more and more dim in comparison to that. It reminds me of a, of a story I heard of. Um, there was a mother and a small boy who were walking through an old Gothic cathedral in British Columbia in Vancouver and displayed all along the top of the building, all around the circumference, were this beautiful, ornate, stained glass with depictions of women and men who served and even gave up their lives in the Second World War. And the little boy was looking up at these pictures, and he turned over to his mom, and he's like, Mom, who are these people? And his mom said, Son, those are the women and the men who died in the service. And the little boy said, huh. Mom, did they die in the Sunday morning or the Sunday evening service? <laughs> now, it's a silly story, but it begs the question, and that really gets to our question too. How vibrant and how alive do I feel in our relationship with Jesus? How vibrant and alive do you feel in your relationship with Jesus? In what ways can you continue to make him the greatest joy and the greatest treasure of your life? Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, he says, Whatever gain I've had, I count as loss for Christ, for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them rubbish. This literally means garbage or dung. I consider them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness that's from my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And so Paul says, you know, all the stuff, all the accolades, all the qualifications, anything else that could be credited to my account, I just diminish any of that compared to the, the 
unsurpassed worth of knowing Christ as my Lord and my Savior. That's a perspective Paul had in Philippians. I love that. And I have to continue to bring myself back to that time and time and time again because I am so easily wandering off track in my life. And maybe you find that you are too. But these are great reminders for us. It's been said that the quality of our worship is in direct proportion to our view of God. The quality of our worship and our view of God are in direct correlation with each other. And so the second part of the question and discussion, question two is, how am I viewing God? Am I viewing God as sort of a genie in the bottle that I just kind of rub once in a while when I need something or if I'm at my wit's end and I just kind of put my requests out there and just as soon have God get back in the bottle when I'm done? Or do I view him more as who he is, the King of kings and Lord of lords? I have this picture in my mind of the temple priests that are bringing these animals. They're so sick that they're blind and their legs are broken and they're saying, here you go, God. And I contrast that with God giving up his blemishless only son. There's no greater cost God could have gone to than to give up his own son. And do you know what that says about the gift giver? It says that he's crazy in love with a recipient. It means that there's nothing he wouldn't do to show his love for you, to buy you back in the relationship with him by wiping away our sins and putting those sins on his son Jesus instead. I mean, I try to contrast these things in my mind and I'm so utterly befuddled with the fact that I am so much more like the priests and yet God continues to remind me that he offered the sinless, spotless lamb of God once and for all for my sin and for yours. If you haven't just, honestly, if you haven't taken time to just really ponder that and to really let that soak your heart and to accept that free gift of forgiveness through Christ, I just want to ask you and encourage you to just get away from everything and the craziness of the busy world sometime and just think about the fact that if the value of the gift depicts the value the gift giver has on the recipient, I can't even get my mind around how much God loves us. And let's not ever, ever let anyone or anything in the world diminish the value that we have because it's God that establishes our value, not those other things. The third discussion area that um, we'll be talking about tonight, um, you know, the temper, temple priests, um, we know that Malachi describes the offerings um, as these kind of leftovers and these priests kind of kept the best portions for themselves. But it's been said that if you want to know what my priorities are, you can look at three things in my life. The way that I use my time, my talents, and my treasure. How am I using my time? How am I using my talents, the skills, the, the gift sets that God has given each one of us, the, the abilities that we have, and my treasures, the money, the resources, the other thing that God, things that God has entrusted to us if we 
evaluate how we're using those three things, it gives us a very, very, very clear picture of what the object of our worship is in our life. So the question for your small groups tonight is going to be, what does your use of time, talent, and treasure reveal about your priorities? Another way to think about it is, if you were suddenly given a million dollars to use however you wanted, or if you were given a year of time, all responsibilities taken care of, to spend on whatever you wanted, or if you were given an incredible skill that you can expend in any way you can possibly imagine, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Is our initial propensity to be like, well, here's what I can buy for myself, and here's what I can do for myself. Is it, is it Steve-centered? Or do I have a focus that is on the Lord and how we can be used by him and how we can represent him well? What's the focus of our time, talent, and treasure? I know this is a hard passage, you guys, and I, know I, I really fear that nobody really feels beat up by this. Um, and I know that so many of you live this out so well in your life, and I'm so thankful for that. Um, I'm thankful for Pastor Sam and all the leaders here who do such a great job of giving their very, very best to be here every week and to invest and to show up and to love on you guys. I just love seeing that. Most um, Monday nights when you guys are meeting here every other week, I'm in uh, the room just across the hallway over here in the um, elder meeting, the church board meeting, and we pray for the church and we pray for the ministries of the church. And one of the things that constantly comes up in discussion with the elder meetings is how much we love to hear the sound of the young adults' ministry bleeding through, out of this room and into the place where we're meeting. We love to hear this group worshiping together and fellowshipping and laughing together and learning from God's word together. We just love to hear that. And it's so encouraging. And so tonight, my prayer is just that we would really spend time evaluating where has my heart been? And if I've been a lot more like the priests, God, I don't want to offer the, the very leftover that I have. I truly want to engage you in worship. I truly want you to show up in my life and do what only you can. There's people who have asked overseas missionaries questions like, why doesn't God work in America like he works in some other countries? And the response almost ubiquitously is, America's kind of fallen asleep spiritually. They're not really very interested in having God show up in the ways that, you know, maybe some of the underground churches are. And again, that's not a political statement. It's not any of that. But there are so many distractions and so many affluences and so many things that are just constantly contending for my attention and for my heart and for the definition of my value. So if you would just uh, bow with me in a word of prayer, um, we're going to then go into a time of uh, small group and we can discuss these things together as well. Father, I am so thankful for Old Testament minor prophets and the way that you've spoken to them in a way that is equally as relevant to us today. Lord, I know that um, if I'm honest in my life, I uh, can relate so much more to the offerings of the priests. And Lord, I know that you've called all of us instead to 
offer to you a reflection of what you've offered us through your son. And I just pray that it would really create in us a heart and a desire to grow in you, to know you more, to deepen our relationship with Jesus, and to continue to represent you as your new royal priesthood to a world that desperately needs you. Thank you for this group, thank you for these people, and thank you for the opportunity to be with them today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.